Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. All right, so I'm going to ask you to stand, if you are able, for the reading of uh, Revelation chapter 10 and 11. Revelation 10, 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the seal, sorry, on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that, that in the days of the trumpet called, on the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel, who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it in my stomach, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would, har- if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will be in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the, on, on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their face, and great fear, on their feet, I'm sorry, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, 
saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders sat on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but you, your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and heavy hail. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So every time I read these out loud, I realize, wow, I give myself a really long passage. But the reason why I put them together is because I, I think that they are all connected. And, and so we could spend three, four Sundays talking about all the details and talking about you know, what the fire that comes out of their mouths means and what's the significance of the rainbow over the head of the angel. But I, I don't want us to go that slow at, at the risk of missing the main theological aspects of this passage or the main, uh, the main concepts that, are trying to be commun- that, that this passage is trying to communicate. And so that's why we are going in bigger sections, um, not, not that going in more detail would be a, a bad idea, but that would take even longer to, to prepare for. So when we studied uh, chapter 7, remember in chapter 7 how we saw or how John heard about a, uh, a crowd of 144,000 people that were sealed with the seal of God, and remember that the seal uh, meant that they were protected from the wrath of God, meant that they were able to stand before the wrath of God, unlike the people that were being judged by God. And then we saw a different scene of basically the same people, but, but from a different perspective. So in, in the one, on the one hand, we have an army, right, that has God's protection, that have been sealed by God, and it's 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 uh, an army that is the army of the Lion of Judah. But then on the other hand, we have a great crowd, a multitude of people that cannot be counted. And they are people from every tribe, tongue, nation, people, and tongue. And they are there because they have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And in that passage in chapter 7, it talks about how these people, the ones who were rescued from the great or who have been, who have come out of the great tribulation. In other words, they were suffering. They were experiencing tribulation, but they had come out of there. And even though this scene is victorious in the sense that they are God's people and they are in God's presence and Jesus is their shepherd and they are enjoying all the blessings of being in the presence of God, I think we were left with a little bit of an incomplete image of saying, okay, so what you're saying is that the way that the church triumphs is by dying? Are you saying that the church is simply just going to go on in this world and the way that we are rescued from the tribulation of this world is just simply by dying, by being martyred? And on the one hand, I would say, yes, I think that's what you're saying. But I think that when we get to chapter 10 and 11, we get a a greater picture of what that victory through dying means. And in fact, not only in chapters 10 and 11, but really uh, all the way through the end of the book, we get a better picture of how that victory of the lamb and of his army is accomplished. And so when we get to chapter 10, John sees another angel, another mighty Angel. Some people have argued that this angel is Jesus because of the way that he is described as having uh, a rainbow over his head, his face. Um, his face was like the sun, etc. I'm 
I I don't really like that interpretation just because I don't feel like there's any other way where Jesus is uh, mentioned or described as an angel. Whenever it is talking about Jesus, it either makes it very clear by saying that, you know, the lamb or the lion, or I'm more convinced that the voice that John's keep that John keeps hearing, that is the voice of Jesus because he is the one revealing these things to John. That this is an angel that God is using as a as as his um, agent for delivering this revelation. In fact, if you go back to Revelation one one, notice the chain of revelation. Revelation one one says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. So God gave the revelation to Jesus to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Look at the chain. God gave the revelation to Jesus. Jesus made the revelation known to, to John by, by the means of an angel. And then John is writing the revelation for Christ's servant. So I believe that this angel here is uh, probably the, the angel that is the, the, the messenger of this uh, revelation. And so he is mighty. He is great. Um, he has a, uh, a little scroll. He has a, a scroll open in his hand. Uh, many people have tried to interpret, okay, what is this scroll? I believe that this scroll is the same scroll that, that Jesus opened. It is the same scroll that the seals were removed, and now the scroll is open. And this scroll, remember, contains the plans of God's judgment and redemption for the world. And so... Some people have argued, and I think I agree with them, that chapter 10 and 11 is where the actual revelation is actually happening. All of the things before that were in preparation for the scroll being opened and for really the content of the scroll being revealed. And so he, uh, there, there is a, a little intermission there that is interesting because... Um, the angel called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. Verse uh, 3, when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, see what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. So remember that we have seven seals. We have seven trumpets. Eventually, we will have seven bowls. But all of a sudden, we are introduced to seven thunders. And we have no idea what these seven thunders are. We can speculate. We, uh, I'm going to at least two possible interpretations for this. One of them is that, remember, if this is a progression, if the, the seals come first and God's judgment is announced and, and God's judgment is happening and then the trumpets come next and God's judgment once again is announced and people are warned against God's judgment, it would, it would follow logically that the seven thunders are yet progression of God's warning and judgment. So, for example, if you think about the seals, it seems like a quarter of humanity is harmed. And then when you think about the trumpets, it would seem that, or it says that a third of humanity and the world and the things in the world are harmed. And so some people have suggested that maybe the seven, the seven thunders, it was going to be a half of humanity that was going to die and to be judged. But for some reason that we don't know, these seals, or sorry, these trumpets actually get rolled back. In other words, God says, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to move on with the seventh trumpet. That's a possible interpretation. Another interpretation is that something that we simply have no idea what it is, is going to happen between the, uh, between the sixth and the seven trumpets. So that's the best I can do. But one lesson that we can learn from here is that God is sovereign. His plan is infinite and his mind is infinite. And so we could try to understand, and I could try to understand, like I said, I don't think that just because the book of Revelation is so hard, we should just throw up our arms and say, oh yeah, I'm done with this book. I'm just going to focus on the basics of the gospel. Yes, we should focus on the basics of the gospel, but if God gave us the book of Revelation, we should do our best to try to understand it. 
But at the same time, we should recognize and say, you know what? There's so many things there that John himself is not allowed to write them down. There's so many things there that I don't think we're going to understand. We are in God's presence. So John is told not to write down uh, the seven thunders. Then the angel um, raised his right hand, verse 5, to heaven, verse 6, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So this angel is declaring that the time has come, or, or he is declaring that once the seventh trumpet sounds, that's when God's plan of redemption is going to be fulfilled. And if you look at the word mystery, that's a word that shows up multiple times in the New Testament. And even though some people have a few different variations of what it means, generally speaking, we can say certainty that whenever the word mystery is in the New Testament, it is talking about God's plan of reason for the world. So for example, in, in Colossians chapter 2, the word mystery is there to talk about the miracle, the, 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 how awesome it is that the Gentiles have been included in God's plan of salvation. And in fact, he says, this mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of glory that we have is that Christ is in us. In this mystery all along, something that had been revealed to the prophets and that the people of Israel should have known when Jesus was there, but that eventually kept moving forward, is that salvation belongs to the Lord and that salvation is for all people. If you, if you notice the, in the book of Revelation, this phrase shows up multiple times. People from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Or I, I probably got the order wrong, but you know what phrase I'm talking about. And I think the point there is that salvation is available to all people. The point there is that the mystery of redemption is that God wants to redeem the world. Is that this salvation does not belong only to Jews or only to Gentiles. The salvation belongs to all people, obviously those who trust in the Lord Jesus. And so what this angel is saying is that when the seventh trumpet is sounded, the mystery of God's redemption would be fulfilled. In other words, this is, this is it. This is the end. When the seven trumpet sounds, God's plan of redemption is completely fulfilled. Um, and, and we're going to see the, the seventh trumpet in a, in a few minutes. And then the voice, verse 8, the voice that had heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, and I believe that this is the voice of Jesus speaking to John. Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him, give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it in my stomach, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So John is given this scroll. And in the same fashion that Ezekiel, in, his, in, in, in the book of Ezekiel, he is also given a scroll. He also eats a scroll. The scroll is also sweet in his mouth. And even though it doesn't, the word bitterness is not mentioned, the, the concept of bitterness in Ezekiel is there in the fact that, that those who are unfaithful to God are going to be judged. And so I think that John here is basically the new Ezekiel who is bringing God's revelation. And this revelation, this prophecy that he is about to say is something that is sweet, something good, something that is uh, um, good news, especially or actually good news only for those who are in Christ. Think about the seven churches that are hearing this message. Think about those churches that are being faithful to God. 
well, this message that is to be revealed should be sweet for them in that this is God's victory being announced. But at the same time, well, and, and here are two possible interpretations. At the same time, it could be bitter for these churches as well because there is going to be a lot of suffering and tribulation involved. Although some people have said it is sweet for the seven church, for the churches that are faithful. It is bitter for those who are not faithful because of God's men falling upon them. He is about to prophesy. Now, chapter 11, this is probably the one that took me the most because there are so many different interpretations about uh, chapter 11. But I believe that from everything that we have seen in the book of Revelation, from the flow of the book of Revelation, this, is, this interpretation that, that I'm about to give is the one that I'm actually the most convinced about. Um, but I am willing to change my, my uh, interpretation because, again, I, I don't expect to figure out in two weeks what the church hasn't figured out in so many years. But basically, chapter 11, especially verses 1 through 14, seems to be some sort of parable about the witness of the church. In other words, John is about to prophesy how the church, how, how God's plan of redeeming the world, how God's mystery is going to be fulfilled. And I believe what verse, what chapter 11 is saying is that the church, the people of God, play a very important role in the fulfillment of God's mystery of salvation and the fulfillment of God's kingdom. And so, well, let's, let's dive into, into chapter 11 and let's see those similarities. So John was given a rod like a staff and he was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar of those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So remember that in the last intermission between the sixth, seventh seal, remember that there was this intermission where God, God's people are sealed. And remember the seal, they are protected, right? But at the same time, notice how there is, there is like a double image there in which they are being protected as an army, right? 144,000 people. But at the same time, in the other scene, we see them as having suffered martyrdom, having been killed, are there in the presence of God. And so what this measuring of the bull, what some people have suggested and, and what, I, what makes sense to me is that this temple is not speaking. Well, if we take the whole chapter 11 as a parable, then it means none of these things are necessarily speaking a literal uh, uh, things in existence, but rather this temple, as in the as in the rest of the book of Revelation and in many parts of the New Testament, this temple seems to be representing God's people. This temple seems to be representing those who are worshippers of God, those who are inside the altar. In fact, it says it right. It says right there that there are people inside the altar. It says, um, "Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there." So there seems to be an illusion of measuring all of God's people. Now, the image of measuring the temple, when it was given to Ezekiel, it was a concept of protection. Whenever something was called to be measured, it meant that it was measured so that it would be protected. And so this is the triumphant part of, of the image in which God's temple, the people of God are going to be or are being protected from their enemies, even though they're experiencing tribulation, even though uh, they face a lot of opposition, God already knows those who are his. God has already measured that temple, the people that are in the temple. He knows those who are his. However, when it says, do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Well, I believe that the Holy City is also an allusion to God's people. And so what some people have suggested is that while spiritually the people of God are protected and the people of God 
are, are not going to experience his wrath outwardly, the nations, the Gentiles, those, the, the pagans. I don't think he's talking here about Gentile versus Jew, but rather the, the pagans, like, like in Matthew 18, uh, it talks about considering someone a Gentile. Considering some, it, it, I think it's talking about the pagans. And basically, even though the inner part of the temple is going to be protected, the people of God are going to be protected. The outside part of the temple, the holy city, the, the outside part of the church is going to be trampled by the So there is this, uh, again, this, di- not dichotomy, but this double sense in which we have a triumphant army and then we have the people redeemed by God who were martyred. And so here we have people inside the temple, the temple of God that is being protected, but we also have the church being trampled by the unbelievers. And so this, the, the, the following verses have uh, caused multiple people to, to be confused to the point that some people who, who don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture have even suggested that this is, was probably a later addition either to the book of Daniel and that John pulled it from Daniel or, or you know, from tradition because it's not in the book of Daniel. Or some people have argued that John just simply pulled this from somewhere else and put it there. Um, and even though I don't believe any of that, I could see why people are like, hey, where is this coming from, right? Because all of a sudden, you are, we are introduced to witnesses. And all of a sudden, we're introduced to uh, three and a half years, and we're introduced to the beast. And we are introduced to all of these things that, that so far, John has not even mentioned once. And so, uh, I could see how some people look at this and say, hmm, this must be an addition. This must be something else. But obviously, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. We believe in the authority of Scripture. And even if John pulled it from a, a Jewish tradition or wherever it is that he got this from, we believe that this was a revelation from God, right? Ultimately, this was a revelation that was given to him by God, to Jesus, to this angel, to John. So these two witnesses, I believe that these two witnesses are represent, or they, they represent the church, the people of God. And I have a few reasons why I believe that. One of them is, well, verse 3 says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So a couple of the reasons why I believe that these, are the, these two witnesses represent the church is because when it talks about the two olive trees, this is uh, an allusion to Zechariah 4.14 and, and the, the broader context of Zechariah. And I realize that many of you are not familiar with this passage. And so I'm, I don't want to give you like a lot of information all at once. But the gist of it is that in, the, in Zechariah 4, and really the whole book of Zechariah, Zerubbabel, who was a king, and Joshua, who was the priest, are basically acknowledged as the mediators of God's covenant. They are the ones who are bringing the people back to, or, or who are building the walls. And, and I can't remember now if they were building the walls or the temple. But the thing is that Zerubbabel is a king. Joshua is a prophet. And remember that in Revelation 5, in the song of the elders, it says that God has redeemed people and he made them a kingdom and priests. And so it's people we have already seen. We have the office of kings, representatives of God, and we have the office of priests. And so I believe that when it's about the two olive trees, this is a reference to that passage in Zechariah. And I believe that it is talking about the, about the role of the church, the role of being God's vice regents, about representing God here on earth and about the role of being priests, meaning being mediators between people and the Lord Jesus Christ. We as the church, we are representing God here on earth. 
We are mediating between people. Now, it also says these are lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Where else have the lampstands been mentioned? These are described as the seven lampstands. And some people have even gone a little bit further and say, how many faithful churches were in, in Revelation 1 through 3? There were only two faithful churches. I don't know that I'm willing to go that far and to say, oh, because there are two faithful churches, there are two witnesses. I think that the reason why there are two witnesses is because of the, uh, the established Jewish principle that everything would be uh, tested by the evidence of witnesses. And so the church here is serving as, as this prophetic group of kings and priests that are prophesying to a world that is against God. Now notice that they are clothed in sackcloth, and this could mean that they are in repentance. Sackcloth is, is a, a uh, clothing that represents repentance and suffering and tribulation. And so the, the, if these two witnesses are the church, and they are clothed in sackcloth, it means that they are a group of repentant people. And not only that, but they are a group that are calling others to repentance. But they're also a group of people that are suffering, that are experiencing tribulation. However, notice not everything's complete, not everything is defeat. In fact, if you look at it, if this is really talking about the church, it presents a very, very triumphant view of the church. Notice the things that the church is able to do. The two witnesses, verse 5, and if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desired. So obviously, these are incredibly complicated uh, concepts. And remember, if we're taking this to be a parable, so it is very likely that these things are speaking figuratively. For example, in, um, in Jeremiah 5.14, it talks about how God's people, basically their word is like fire coming out of their mouths. God's word, remember the image of Jesus, how he is described as having a sword coming out of his mouth and, his, uh, and there is fire. So, you know, we could spend some time trying to look into, okay, what, what does exactly, what is the meaning of this particular uh, instance and how is the church, how, how does the church do that? But number one, I don't feel ready to talk about that. And number two, um, I think that the concept is clear though, that this, these two witnesses are not just harmless or, or, or harmless and helpless witnesses that are completely overpowered by the world. In fact, for, for the 1,260 days, for whatever that period of time is, they are triumphing. They are doing what God told them to do. God gave them the commission to prophesy and they prophesied for that time. God gave them the power to, uh, to use these, uh, you know, to, to cast these plagues on people, to do these miraculous works, and they are doing it. Now, a, a quick word here. Again, I don't think that, that this is exactly literal, but I do think for a moment, you know, we believe in the, in the stories of the moment where Moses came and, you know, sent some plagues. And we believe in the, in the Old Testament histories about Elijah and Elisha and all the things that they did and all of God's prophets. We believe in the things that we in the New Testament about how uh, Paul and Peter both raised people from the dead and how people were healed just by, by the show of Peter walking by, touching them. And so... I do think that sometimes we have too little of, of faith. I do believe that sometimes we try to soften things by saying, well, he said that if you have faith like this grain of mustard or this mustard seed, you can, you can 
talk to that mountain and it'll be thrown into, into the sea, I think that we too quickly go and say, well, you know, of course, what Jesus really meant was this. And maybe some of you might say, well, that's exactly what you're doing here. But I do think that looking at these things and thinking about these two witnesses as God's people who have been given authority to do these things, that really makes me think that we as a church, sometimes we have too little faith. And that we should go more boldly proclaiming the gospel. Now, I'm not ready to tell you and say, hey, if someone does not believe in the message, you should pray so that this horrible plague falls on them. I'm not ready to go there. But I do think that we have the power of the word. And we have the power of the spirit. And I'm sure you have heard of missionaries in in other cities where they have done things like that, where... You know, people didn't believe and, and they prayed for a drought and then they prayed for, for rain to come and things like that. Even throughout church history, we have uh, some stories like that. And so I do believe that the image that we have here of these, of these two witnesses is a triumphant one. is one where they have power and authority from God and they are accomplishing their mission. They are there to prophesy and that is exactly what they are doing. Now notice that there, in verse 7, there is an end to this testimony. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will be in the street of the great symbolic called Sodom, Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, and exchange presents because the two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. How does the world feel about the church? Those who are enemies of God were probably a torment to them. If we are being faithful to God, if we are proclaiming the word of God, if we are doing our job, which is to be witnesses to the testimony of Christ, to those who continue in unrepentance, we are a torment to them. They hate us. Those who are the enemies of God, they hate the church. And so we shouldn't be surprised that... You know, when, when this beast that we're going to talk more about the beast in the, in, the following, in the following chapters, but when this beast comes up from the bottomless pit and, and conquers them, which is interesting, that is the same word that has been used over and over about overcoming and conquering. So this beast conquers the people of God for a, for a very limited time. It is no surprise that people are celebrating. And so honestly, I don't know if this is talking about a certain time in history where the church will be completely, will be so uh, uh, attacked by the world and so, um, it will experience so much tribulation that there will be a point in history where maybe there will be no, no visible trace of the church. I don't know. I really don't know. But I do believe that there is a point in which the beast, the enemy, and, and, and the enemies of God will think that they have conquered, will think that they have won because they killed the two witnesses. And notice how these two witnesses are now put in parallel with the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ was killed in Jerusalem, these two witnesses are killed in this city where the Lord was killed. And so, again, we go back to the same theme. If our Lord Jesus Christ conquered by his death, then we shouldn't be surprised if we as the church, the way we conquer is by our death, by follow steps of our Messiah. Now, one... Uh, 
the, the beautiful thing, the, the amazing thing here is that these witnesses do not remain dead. Even though the, even though the people celebrate and, and they give gifts to each other and they are so happy and they degrade them to the point that they don't even let them be buried. That's not the end of the story. The victory of the beast only lasts three and a half days. Because after that, they, verse um, 11, but after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So notice how they are victorious, how Jesus, their Lord, is the one that raises them. And so we as the church, we as believers, we can go about our testimony, we can go about our commission with confidence, knowing that even if we die in our mission, we have life in Christ. We have eternal life. We should go about our mission without any fear of death because we know that Jesus has already defeated death. He has already conquered death. We should go about our mission whether this resurrection here is, is talking about a literal resurrection or not, we should go about as if we are living this resurrected life. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because we believe in his resurrection, because he rose again, then we can live our faithfully, doing our job as prophets, doing our job as kings, as priests to God, calling people to repentance, calling people to worship God. Remember that after the six seals, sorry, the seven seals, the six trumpets, no one worshiped God. When the seven seals ended, people continued in their unrepentance. When the sixth seal ended, or sorry, the sixth trumpet ended, continued in unrepentance. But what happened after the witness of the church? What happens after... Two witnesses die and then rise again. And obviously more judgment from God comes. The hour there, there was a great earthquake. But notice, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Notice how this is similar to Chapter 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by, the seven, by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and, and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So notice the rest of mankind who weren't killed, they did not repent in chapter 9. After the, the, the testimony of the witnesses, the rest of humanity who weren't killed, they gave glory to the God of heaven. There is also an interesting reversal here. Notice how the judgment keeps, keeps growing, right? First, a fourth of humanity is, is killed. Then a third of humanity is killed. But then notice that here, after the witness of the, the two witnesses, it is 7,000 people who are killed. And the rest give glory to God. And this is almost like a reversal. Remember in, in, in the history of Elijah, how God said that he had appointed 7,000 to be saved. In this case, it's the other way around. Only 7,000 died. The rest gave glory to God. And, and some people might have a different interpretation, but I believe that these people giving glory to God, they are saved. They finally recognize that 
all of this is coming from God and that this witness is from God and they finally glorify him. Now, I believe that chapter 11, this particular section, is a really short summary of what John is about to tell us in the next chapter. So it's almost like he just told us in a nutshell what is going to happen. And then in chapters 12, 13, 14, 16, he is going to expand on that. And so a lot of the themes are only being introduced, like the three and a half years and the, the, the beast and the bottomless pit and all of those things are just being introduced but he is going to deal with those in more detail in the following chapters. So verse uh, 15, the seventh trumpet is finally blown. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of the Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who saw on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. So notice, finally, the, 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 the seventh trumpet is blown. This signifies that God's plan of salvation, God's plan of redeeming the world, God's plan of establishing his kingdom 100% in heaven and on earth is finally completed. And so... I find it extremely interesting that this of the two witnesses is sandwiched between these two things, right? First is sandwiched between the angel lifting his hand to heaven and saying, saying that there will be no more delay, that God's mystery will be fulfilled. And between the seventh trumpet being blown and saying that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. And I believe that what this is saying is that the role of these two witnesses, the role of the church is instrumental to the accomplishment of God's work of redemption in the world. And this shows a sense of, uh, first of all, humility in saying, wow, who are we for, for God to use us as his agents? But at the same time, it should give us boldness and it should motivate us to say, wow, the redemption of the world is the, the mystery is that the redemption of the world is tied to the people of God. Like I mentioned in Colossians 2, the mystery is that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. The mystery is that we are the body of Christ. And so whatever Christ accomplishes on earth, he accomplishes it through his church, through his body. And so this again, should give us a lot of boldness in saying, in, in knowing that God's plans for redemption for the world, they, they, we play a really important part there. Not because of how amazing we are or how awesome we are, no. But simply because of the grace of God. We play a role here. We, we are priests. We are prophets. We are calling people to repentance. And when the final trumpet is blown, the kingdom that God has already started will be fulfilled. Finally, just as we have been praying, your will be done, your kingdom come, as, as, or your will be done in in, on earth as it is in heaven, we will finally be able to say, now your will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom is 100% completely fulfilled. And we will be in the new Jerusalem. We will be in his presence. And so this is the song that the elders sing. And we're, we'll finish with this. Verse 17, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you've taken your great power and began to reign. Notice the difference there. You thought if you've been paying attention to Revelation, you, you would think that it would say who is and who was and who is to come. What's the difference here? Who has begun to reign. So by the time that this trumpet is blown, God has already come. Jesus has already come and he has already be, begun and established his kingdom. The nations raged, verse 18, but your wrath came 
and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within the temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this passage that you left here for us, Lord. And Lord, even though there's uh, so many different uh, suggested interpretations to this passage, and I, I realize that I could be wrong in, in, in some of the detail route that I've taken, Lord. One thing we know for sure, you are establishing your kingdom on earth. You are using us as your church, your body. You are using us for your glory. And we know that you will establish, fulfill your plan of redemption. There is nothing that can stop you. In the grand scheme of things that the the rebellion of the beast, the, be, the beast killing these two witnesses, like a tiny thing in comparison to your victory. This whole book is about your victories, about your glory. We give you glory. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving your life for us. Thank you for including us in this plan. Thank you for the mystery of salvation that has been revealed. We praise you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.